Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. We're so glad that you're joining us today from wherever you are. Whether you attend one of our Denver locations or listen online, our hope is to explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. And if you'd like to financially support our community and beyond as we set aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Thank you for joining us today. Um, so it's Lent, first Sunday of Lent. And we're going to spend the next six weeks and even Easter reflecting on the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are eight statements of blessing that Jesus makes uh, in the beginning of Matthew, which we read together this morning. And um, we'll we'll work through one each week uh, into Easter. And so this week we decided, you know, we have Aaron and Becky with us. Let's make the whole thing uh, friends of DCC. And uh, many of you are familiar with or you know or you've heard Jonathan Merritt speak. He's spoken here several times. And I've been thinking all morning about how I was going to introduce him. And uh, Jonathan's a prolific writer. He's a syndicated columnist. He's written books, which, by the way, this is my favorite one that he's written, Learning to Speak God from Scratch. And we have those in the back. Uh, You can pick those up after uh, our time together this morning. But um, Jonathan is far more than that. He's become... Uh, a good friend, uh, a trusted confidant. Uh, he's become someone who is deeply encouraging for me and so many others. And uh, he's really, truly a friend of Denver Community Church. And I'm so grateful for him, for his life, for his work, knowing that all that he says and writes comes from a deep place of love rooted in the heart of God. So would you welcome to the platform with me, Jonathan Merritt. Okay, good morning. It's been a minute since I've been with you uh, in the flesh, as it were. I was with you digitally uh, during the pandemic, but it's good to be uh, with you in person. You know, there's a, there's a real downside to the Bible. There's a few of them, I suppose. Um, one of them is, is that when you study Scripture, Scripture has a way of studying you. And uh, <laughs> this was not a text that I chose. Uh, it was one that I was assigned, and um, perhaps uh, we would describe that as providential. Um, today's text has done some work on me, and as we start today, I'd love to offer just a minute of quiet and silence for those of you who maybe hope to experience the same thing uh, this morning. So whatever it is that you're bringing into this space, the fullness of who you are, sit with that and maybe open your heart to what God might have to say to you this morning. Come Holy Ghost, our souls inspire and illuminate us with your celestial fire. For if you are here among us, then nothing else really matters. And if you are not here among us, then nothing else really matters. We ask you to speak 
In the name of your son, Jesus, amen. You know, when I was a child, I could often be found sitting in my family's living room, crisscross applesauce, in front of a television set, while a mild-mannered host on PBS named Mr. Rogers gently told me that my emotions were not something to be feared, but something to be faced and embraced. I can still hear the sound of that trolley bell reverberating from my past. I can still see him slipping off his jacket and replacing it with one of those cardigans that his mother, Carolyn, famously knitted for him. And most of all, I can still see him ending his show the way he always did. By looking into the camera and saying, you've made this day a special day. By, by just your being you. There's nobody in the whole world like you. And I like you just the way you are. For somebody who grew up gay and evangelical, that was gospel for me. It was something that I needed to hear. So a few years ago, I decided I would write a posthumous profile for the Atlantic of Mr. Rogers, which was really just a good excuse to do some background research on a childhood hero and get paid for it. Now, if you've ever watched this show, some of you have, maybe raise your hand if you've ever seen Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. It ran for many, many decades. Um, if you watch this show, then you know that this show could not have been more different from most TV programming for children. It wasn't flashy or sleek. There were no special effects, no cheap laughs, no need for stunt doubles or computer animation. What you may not know is that all of that was intentional. You see, Rogers got into television broadcasting after he saw the silly demeaning, even violent television programming that was being made for children. In the wake of World War II, Rogers watched as a generation of American parents, particularly men and veterans, had returned home with kind of a trouble expressing their feelings. And, and as he, had, he observed this, he started to, to fear that the children of these quiet giants might grow up to be emotionally stunted. While most children's shows uh, sought to entertain young viewers by using outlandish characters to create on-screen drama, Mr. Rogers wanted to use his show to help children learn how to deal with their inner drama. He spoke to children like grown-ups. He helped them tackle topics such as rage and disappointment, fear and grief. When Mr. Rogers' pet goldfish died, he didn't just purchase a new one. He used the occasion to talk to all of his kids about loss and sadness. And for him, this was not just a job it was a sacred calling. You see, Mr. Rogers was an ordained Presbyterian minister who believed that the space between the television set and the viewer was holy ground. 
So Rogers purposed to use this consecrated space to tell children that they mattered, that they were worthy of love, and that emotions were to be embraced and not buried. This neighborhood that he created was a place where generations of children came to process all of the terrors of the outside world, Vietnam and Watergate, Chernobyl and Challenger, Ethiopian famine and ethnic cleansing, Oklahoma City and Littleton, Polyclos and Jean Benet Ramsey. As Rogers once said, the world is not always a kind place. That's something that all children will learn for themselves, whether we want them to or not. But it's something they really need our help to understand. Early on, Rogers assembled a team of child development experts to help shape his shows. Before every episode was taped, this team would gather around the script, they would read it, they would analyze how it might affect a child's cognitive or emotional development. On occasion, Rogers and his team would assemble learning groups of actual children from across the community to whom they would listen and from whom they would learn. In one of these listening groups, in the 1960s. A child posed a curious question for Mr. Rogers. The child asked, what do you do with the mad that you feel? It's amazing how deep children can be if we stop to listen to them. What do you do with the mad that you feel? This, this, the phrasing was so salient and honest and important that it haunted Rogers. And later on, he decided to write a song about it for his show. The lyrics went like this. What do you do with the mad that you feel? When you feel so mad, you could bite. When the whole world seems oh so wrong and nothing you do seems very right. What do you do? Do you punch a bag? Do you pound some clay or some dough? Do you round up friends for a game of tag or see how fast you can go? It's great to be able to stop when you've planned a thing that's wrong and be able to do something else instead, like sing this song. I can stop when I want to. I can stop when I wish. I can stop, stop, stop anytime. And what a good feeling to feel like this and know that the feeling is really mine. To know that there's something deep inside that helps us become what we can. For a girl can someday be a lady and a boy can someday be a man. Now, some 50 years later, I think we probably edit and update a little bit of the song's language. And also, the central question here about the management of our emotions, the confrontation with our unfeelable feelings and unthinkable thoughts, those questions, I think, are no less haunting and important than they once were, not just for children, but for all of us grown-ups, too. So what do you do with the mad that you feel, with the sad that you feel? What do you do with the grief that floods your life after a profound experience of loss? 
You know, if you found yourself asking questions like these in recent days, well, then Jesus' second beatitude is dedicated to you. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's a word for us today. But the first day that Jesus spoke these words, at least according to Matthew's memory, he was standing on a mountaintop and speaking to a crowd of people, a crowd of people who, by the way, knew a little something about loss themselves. They were Jewish peasants, most of them, people who had lost their land and lost their heritage and lost their sense of security. Many of them unable to afford the taxes that were levied on them by both Roman government and the temple, had lost their homes and their livelihoods. Some of them were farmers, and they knew exactly what it was like to work for months and months and months only to see your crops fail, which meant losing basically everything. You, you want to know what loss looks like? In first century Palestine, women gave birth to 10 children so that four could survive. And the children who didn't die, well, most of them lost the innocence and joy of childhood at a very early age in order to work for a living and contribute to the survival of the rest of the family. So standing on that mountain that day, Jesus begins to appeal directly, I think, to this experience of loss in the crowd, to this experience of loss in this crowd. If you've ever had a miscarriage or miscarriages, plural, well, then Jesus has a blessing for you. If you've ever weathered a breakup or an unwanted diagnosis, if you've ever had a friend who you loved with your whole heart move a continent away, well, then Jesus has a blessing for you. If you ever lost a job that you needed to make rent, if you've ever lost a physical ability that once you took for granted, if you've ever woken up to find that your spouse has skipped town, then Jesus has a blessing for you. Or, or maybe you had someone who you couldn't imagine living without, who just up and crossed over from this life into the next without even giving you a chance to say goodbye. <laughs> if you've ever experienced that, well, then Jesus has a blessing for you. What do you do with the mad that you feel? What do you do with the sad that you feel? What do you do with the loss that has swept through your life that you never asked for and that you never wanted and that you didn't prepare for? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You know, most of us, I think, if we're honest, we'd say that we do our level best to reduce the need for mourning in our lives. And if we absolutely must do it, well, then we just hurry it along as fast as we can. I don't know anyone who sat down to make their 2022 New Year's resolutions and scribbled more mourning across the top. 
I don't know anyone who chose sadness to be the word they would live into this year. Now, most of us, we hope tomorrow will bring less darkness and more light, less gloom and more good old-fashioned joy. And we have all set out to design lives for ourselves to help make this reality so. When a, late, when a relationship grows too heavy, we find a new partner who will make us happier. If a television show makes us feel too sad, we change the channel so we can watch something a little less depressing. We stockpile friends who have good energy. We steer clear of Debbie Downers. And if your job feels like a drag, well, anyone will tell you, you should just go find a new one. Then somehow, despite all of this, all of this engineering and manufacturing and effort, somehow sadness still finds a way to creep in for one reason or another. And then what? Well, then maybe we rush to the self-help section of the bookstore and purchase one of the many titles you'll find there from the many gurus who write them. They'll all be there promising you tips and tricks to think positively and focus on the future, not the past. Now, if these books don't work for you, well, you're still not out of options. There is a multi-billion dollar health and wellness industry boasting an endless supply of supplements, tinctures, medicines, elixirs, and diets, all of them clinically proven to help improve your mood and dull your pain. Yet, somehow, somehow, all of this effort is still not enough. It's not enough. We try to engineer this pain-free existence, and it's not enough. Grief still somehow finds a way to wiggle into our lives, to sink into the cracks. Eventually, the dam breaks. The dream dies. The truth comes out. What do you do with the mad that you feel, with the sad that you feel in moments like those? What do you do with all of the pain that keeps showing up in the ordinary rhythms of your life despite all of our collective best efforts to wall it out? Guess you could stuff it away, choke it back, think positively, or focus on the future. You can hide your pain or deny your pain or take something, anything that promises to numb your pain. And this is all, I think, uh, understandable. The word grief itself comes from the Latin word gravis. It's a, a word that we use to get English words like grave or gravity. Even etymologically, uh, grief carries a lot of weight. And that's part of the reason, I think, that we often resist it. But our resistance to our pain can never bring reprieve from our pain. It just allows us to stockpile within ourselves unprocessed anger and congested emotions and unattended disappointment and unexpressed sadness that will, 
In the words of psychotherapist and spiritualist Francis Weller, block access to our very souls. And so standing on that mountain in the front of, in front of so many people who, like you and me, were working overtime to keep all of those emotions on the inside from making their way to the outside, to those people and to these people, Jesus says, blessed are you who mourn. You'll be comforted. Now, Jesus did not invent the beatitude as a form on the mountain that day. This is a well-established literary form. Jesus was actually borrowing this form from the Hebrew Bible. If you stop to read the, what we Christians call the Old Testament, you will find lots of beatitudes there. These typically show up as short, two-part affirmations that sum up common knowledge about the good life. When the 32nd Psalm says, blessed is the one whose guilt is taken away, most people naturally agree. Who doesn't want to offload the burden of heavy guilt? When Proverbs 3 declares, blessed is the one who finds wisdom, well, then most of us think, sign me up. But Jesus does something so odd in his Beatitudes. He breaks the mold by blessing a whole list of things that we naturally resist, things that don't confirm common knowledge but contradict it, that rub up against the things that we think would lead us to the good life. Persecution, I prefer popularity, but thanks for the offer. Meekness, sounds good in theory, but shouldn't I be speaking my truth to whomever will listen? Peacemaking? Well, that one has a nice ring to it. But when given a chance, we almost always opt for revenge instead, don't we? As one Episcopal author has written, in this life, most of us pedal pretty hard to avoid going in the direction of Jesus's Beatitudes. But whatever you believe about Jesus, believe this about you. The things that seem to be going most wrong for you may in fact be the things that are going most right. This doesn't mean that you shouldn't try to fix them. It just means that they may be in need of a blessing as much as they are in need of a fixing since the blessing is already right here in our midst. Now, Jesus' second beatitude here, like the others, is arranged into two short clauses. The first half of the sentence tells us who is blessed, and the second half of the sentence explains how they are blessed. Blessed are those who mourn for or because they shall be comforted. Comfort, that's a word. I bet there are more than a few of you here this morning who are thinking you could use a little more comfort right now. But I wonder if that's because most of us think of comfort as just a synonym for relief. You know, as I said, we've engineered and oriented our lives to insulate from pain and eliminate any pain that slips through the cracks as quickly as possible. 
And so when that comes into our lives, we want it to go away. We want relief. But you know, there's a difference between comfort and relief. Relief is an escape artist. Comfort is in the construction business. The word comfort itself is from the Latin word meaning to fortify, to build up. When we are comforted, our, our lives, our constructs, our frameworks, the things that we have built, all that we have made and, and engineered to keep the pain out there is reconstructed and reinforced. We're given new eyes to see the suffering of others and a new heart to express the compassion that we now know firsthand is what is needed most when suffering shows up. Comfort often brings us relief, but it doesn't come simply to help us escape our pain. It has much more important work to do. We want relief. I know this, but Jesus offers us comfort. Comfort, which is so much better than relief. Those who are comforted are not merely solaced. They're strengthened, fortified, defended, deepened, enlarged, expanded, elevated by almighty love, which is to say by almighty God. The comfort that God wants for us is so much better than the relief we want for ourselves, but I do have to warn you there's a catch. You see, when it comes to Jesus' Beatitudes, most of us want the second half of the sentence, but not so much the first. Give me the mercy. I'll take the divine kingdom. Please let me inherit the earth. All of that sounds really really good to me. But you know, living the Beatitudes is a little bit like reciting them. You can't get to the second part unless you go through the first. If you want to experience divine comfort, well, then you'll need to learn how to mourn first. And I'm not so sure that most of us have taken time to understand what that looks like either. See, I have a suspicion that most of us today thought this would be a really comfortable message, a message that we would mostly agree with, because when we first read Jesus's Beatitudes, we we don't hear, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We hear, blessed are those who feel grief, for they shall find relief. But just as comfort is more than relief, so too mourning is more than mere grief. We've already pointed out that grief is an inescapable experience of life. It's a natural response to the loss that we cannot avoid no matter how hard we try. Grief is what you feel. When all the painful emotions of life find a way to to penetrate your well-constructed defenses, but mourning, well, mourning is what we do with those feelings. Mourning is what we do with the mad that we feel, with the sad that we feel, with the grief that we feel. You you could define mourning as ritualized grief, often given in the presence of another person, a witness. Grief 
comes upon you often without warning or consent. But mourning, mourning must be chosen, accepted, enacted. Everybody grieves, but not everybody mourns. Now, this is something that modern people like us, well, we need it explained to us a little better because for most of us in our modern lives, we haven't encountered these kinds of grief rituals very often. But when Jesus used this word mourning to the crowd sitting on that sloping mountainside, they knew exactly what he meant. As Bible scholar Ellen Davis writes, people in the ancient world understood better than we that deep mourning is something you do actively. It's a responsibility to be assumed. So there were rituals to be performed, tearing your clothes, heaping ashes on your head, wailing, dancing, or just sitting. This type of mourning that was practiced in the ancient world was comprehensive. It incorporated both words and actions, weaving them together into a full-body practice. It was undignified and unguarded. And the goal? Simple. To involve the community to ensure that the pain that was being experienced would be witnessed and shared. Bear one another's burdens. In this way, the ancients may have actually been more advanced than we are. Because today we've, we have replaced many of the mourning rituals with a host of modern habits that actually keep us from mourning, which is to say so many of us have forgotten what it looks like to mourn, and we need to relearn that lost art. When I first moved to New York City a decade ago, I moved to a Jewish neighborhood in Brooklyn. Now, if you want to relearn how to mourn, you'd be hard-pressed to find a better teacher than a Jewish rabbi. In the Jewish tradition, there is a well-known practice called sitting shiva. Now, that word shiva, it sounds strange to you, I know, but it's just a fancy word, a Hebrew word for the number seven. This practice lasts seven days, and during it, you do not go to the synagogue or the funeral parlor to express your grief. You enter the home of the grievers. Rather than ask them to seek support outside of their domain, you meet them on their turf, in the white, hot center of their heartache. While sitting shiva, some people will tear their clothes, some will wear black ribbons or armbands, some will sit on short stools low to the floor, but for seven days you sit and you remember. You cry and you laugh sometimes at the same time. You tell stories and you embrace and you pray. Oh, do you pray? People will bring food to eat and to share because sometimes it takes a village to hold that heavy weight of grief. In Ukraine, when a loved one dies... The community will mourn for 40 days. 
The first three days are considered to be very special because there's this belief in the Ukrainian Orthodox Church that when a person dies, the, stole, the, the, the person's soul stays near the body. It sort of hovers around the body for three days after death. And so during those three days, friends and family will come to stand next to the open casket of their beloved friend or family member and say their goodbyes. One person slips a handwritten note inside the deceased's jacket pocket. Another takes money wrapped in a handkerchief and places it inside the casket. The debt repaid. Another comes by to ask forgiveness for all of that silly stuff that had come between them. And another still comes just to stand, to stare to touch the face of their friend, mother, lover, child, one final time. At the end of the third day after death, there's a party. It actually happens three times, also on the ninth day and the 40th. The deceased family and friends get together for a memorial feast, toasts, are sometimes given. Pictures are almost always passed around, and you can almost always count on old friends to drag out old stories so that there's not a dry eye in the whole place. After the meal, a special pastry is served in the shape of a circle to symbolize eternity. This is only goodbye for now. And the feast is attended by a lively bunch. Well, if this happens then they may even play the deceased's favorite song and dance like fools in their honor. Ukrainians know how to mourn, which sadly is a skill that's in rather high demand right now. Now, most of us are neither Jewish nor Ukrainian, but that doesn't mean we can't mourn in our own way, in a way that works for us. You know, this year... Actually, I've been in a season of unbelievable stress and exhaustion and overwhelm and sadness. Friends have lost jobs and grandmothers. People that I love have been diagnosed with lifelong illnesses or they're struggling with chronic illnesses that no doctor can seem to name. Families that I know and love are feuding, estranged. And my life in this season, like so many of yours, has been filled with so much loss. For my part, I've tried not to think about it all that much. Instead, all I do is work, 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 which is a pretty good way to keep grief at bay at least temporarily. But then there was a point two weeks ago. I was in a taxi on the way back to my apartment, and without warning, all of that pain and sadness and stress and madness, everything from this season just came flooding in. Now, at the time, I was in the middle of researching mourning and the wisdom of Jesus' second beatitude. So I decided that rather than go back to my home, I would go to a neighbor's home. 
And I sat on her couch, and the tears started coming. For two hours, the tears came. And my friend made snacks, and she opened a bottle of wine, which is always a really good thing to have around if you're going to be mourning, by the way. And she didn't try to give me advice. She bore witness to my grief. She held my hand. And she reminded me with just her mere presence that I am not alone. And you know what I think? I can't prove it. I think the Spirit was there too. I think the Spirit was working in that sacred space between the two of us to fortify me, to build me up, to tear down the constructs that I have used to insulate myself from grief and sadness and anger and disappointment and to build up something that's much better than all of that. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You know, if you're blessed in your mourning, you You, if you are blessed in your mourning, what does that mean? Well, it means you don't have to feel embarrassed when the tears fall and just keep on falling. If you're blessed in your mourning, it means that you are free now. You are liberated. You no longer have to keep treating grief like a threat to be avoided. If you're blessed in your mourning, then you don't have to feel guilty when you can't shake your sadness. If you're blessed in your mourning, it means that when you have enough courage to release what you have been holding onto or walling out, then you also have the power to create space for God, a God who is close to the brokenhearted to meet you there and to perform what spiritual people like us might call a miracle. So I don't know what you've been holding back or running from or stuffing away or numbing out or re-narrating on social media. I don't know what residual wounds from your childhood have been sutured but not healed. I don't know what you're hiding when you're trying your best to keep it all together for your children or in your workplace. But if today you walked into this building with a black and blue heart, or a tear-stained shirt. I think God wants to meet you in that. And so I guess I have to apologize that I don't have any tips or tricks for you today. I don't have any strategies for getting over it and focusing on the future. All I have is an invitation a blessing, a word from Jesus inviting us into a new way of living. An invitation is what this is. It's not a law. It's not a rule. It's not a commandment. 
You're not sinning if you don't do it. But you sure are invited into it. Which means that at the end of this beatitude, it's all up to you. You can choose to keep walking the way that you have been walking and see if that works out. Or you can enter into this place of mourning and see if maybe, just maybe, the great comforter will show up and meet you there in ways you could never imagine. May we have that kind of courage today and may God show up in those spaces. In the name of Christ, amen. As we prepare to come to the table, I want to first give us just a minute to be present to whatever is going on inside you right now. You don't have to do anything with it. You don't have to answer in a particular way. But rather than pushing it aside, let us just spend a moment in God's presence and in each other's presence being present and open to what's going on. Holy Spirit, please speak. Your servants are listening. Jesus Christ, we have heard your invitation and we want to say yes. Would you help us? Would you teach us? Would you lead us? Would you meet us in this place? We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.